Amen. Uh, please turn with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 6. I'll be reading verses 51 through 59. Excuse me, uh, verses uh, 52 through 59. I think I said 51. 52 through 59. John chapter 6, verses 52 through 59. Hear the word of the Lord. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Amen. This this sermon is actually going to be short because we've covered a lot of this. We have. We, we've covered uh, a lot of what Jesus says here, but Jesus does go a little further, and he adds something in this passage that is, is not in the previous verses, and, and we'll focus on that statement. In particular, it's in verse 56 when he says that the person who eats his flesh and drinks his blood abides in him and I in him. Hadn't made that statement like that yet. But remember the chapter, our context. What what is going on here? Jesus feeds the 5,000. Jesus feeds the 5,000. 5,000 men, some women, some children. And then he walks on water, saves his disciples. Now when that crowd that was fed finds Jesus... They are interested not only in how he got over to uh, Capernaum, to that area, but they want to know what they must do that they might work the works of God. And Jesus tells them. You know, think, think uh, Jesus is, is he's, he's bringing them along here with his, uh, in this dialogue. He tells them that they have to believe in him. That's what he says to them. And he tells them very clearly. They ask, what must we do? Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Now you see there, Jesus doesn't tell him uh, where he's sent from. He kind of leaves that out. And they question Jesus. Right At this point, they say, well, what sign are you going to do? 
Moses fed the people in the wilderness 40 years. You only gave us food one day. Do some more tricks. Maybe we'll believe in you. And then Jesus presses the issue and he says to them, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. When they hear this, they say, well, give us this bread always. We want this bread all the time. They're still thinking about physical bread. And they complain. Verse 41. How is it that this man that we know tells us he came down from heaven? Not only do they have a problem with believing in Jesus, they ask for more miracles. They have a problem with believing that he came from heaven. We know his mom, we know his dad, we know his brothers, we know his sisters. What does he mean he came down from heaven? We have to believe that he came down from heaven? So Jesus offers some correction. He rebukes them. He tells them to stop complaining. And not only does he tell them to stop complaining, he, tells, he makes an observation about their fathers, and he tells them that it is necessary that they eat the bread that has come down from heaven. And now they object to this even more. Verse 52. Not only are they complaining about him, but now they're quarreling among themselves. There's a squabble going on. And uh, this doesn't mean that they're arguing with each other. There's, there's just an argument going on in the group. They've got a problem. How, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? How is it that he can... Uh, commend cannibalism. Uh, you, you ever been in a, it's never happened to me, but maybe in a discussion with your wife and it seems like they're working really hard to disagree with you, right? No matter how clear you are or how, they just, uh, this is what the Jews are doing. They are working as hard as they possibly can to disagree with Jesus. And Jesus does something here that is, that is very interesting. Jesus is really, uh, his words are intended to stir them up. He is doing this on purpose. Cannibalism is mentioned. Isn't isn't uh, cannibalism is mentioned in scripture, but it's not. It's never mentioned as a prohibition. It's taken as a given, really, that we ought not to do it. And in the instances where it's mentioned, cannibalism is mentioned. It's God's judgment upon the people, and it's going to occur during the siege, during the time when Nebuchadnezzar is going to come, siege the city, and then take them into captivity. So it's in Deuteronomy 28, Jeremiah 19, the book of Lamentations, Ezekiel, and the book of Ezekiel. And then it's recounted in 2 Kings. And of course, this is because man is made in the image of God. But if the people were paying attention just a little bit, they would have understood that by eating, Jesus meant believing. That's what he's talking about. And the reason why he used that vivid imagery of eating is because one, you, nobody could eat for you. You must do it yourself. And when you eat, you derive 
the nutrients that are necessary to sustain your life. And the person who believes on Jesus is sustained spiritually. Eternal life is imparted to them because he is the bread from heaven. So his language really now is intended to stir them up because listen to what he says. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Uh, Jesus never read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. <laughs> never, never read that book. He wasn't interested in pandering to the people. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus was rude. That's not his point. For example, if you have a friend or a neighbor, someone that you know, maybe someone that you grow up with, who gets involved, let's say, um, in the Jehovah's Witness cult, what do you have to talk to them about? Do you have to talk to them about the gospel? But specifically, there are doctrinal aberrations in the Jehovah's Witnesses that you have to address. Like Jesus is God. And what's going to happen when you bring that up? It's like hitting a bee's nest, right? Or a hornet's nest, right? It's, it's going to cause a quarrel. But that's the issue that you have to address. Because that's the issue. Of course, there are other things. Works, righteousness, so on and so forth. The gospel itself. With Mormons... Right? When you're speaking to a Mormon, one of the issues that's really going to rise to the top of your discussion is, this is the only word of God we have, not your book of Moroni, or, right? not your book of Mormon. It's this book. And what, do you think they're going to receive that well? No. It's not going to taste like pumpkin chip cookies. <laughs> right? it's gonna be, that's going to be bitter medicine. They're not going to want it. And the issue with the Jews was they did not want to believe that Jesus was their Savior. So he presses the itch issue, and he, he couches it in biblical imagery. John tells us something in verse 4 of chapter 6. He says, Now the Passover of the Feast of the Jews was near. Now, this feast was one of the three pilgrimages that the uh, Jewish people uh, took every year. And it really was a high point of their year and of their worship. And what it, what, uh, what it focused on, really, what it recollected was their deliverance from Egypt. That's what they would remember when they came to celebrate the Passover. We have been delivered from our sins. Now, in the Old Testament, the Passover was distinguished from the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But as you come into the New Testament, these feasts were celebrated so close together that the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were basically separate, uh, celebrated together. So, for example, in Leviticus chapter 23, uh, verses 5 through 6, it says this. On the 14th day of the first month, at twilight, 
is the Lord's Passover. On the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So they would celebrate. the. Uh, once you get into the New Testament, the people just said, well, why don't we just make this one big party, right? And we'll just celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread together. So what would they be doing during this time? They would be eating flesh, not drinking blood, but there is significance to the blood also. What was the promise in the Passover? What was the promise in the Passover? The Passover wasn't, wasn't that they were going to come out of Egypt. That's not the primary reference. Why did they have to kill this, the Paschal lamb, and then take its blood and put it on the doorpost so that the destroying angel would basically pass over their house and their firstborn son would live. It was deliverance from judgment and it was a deliverance from the judgment of God that they were celebrating. And it was by means of judgment that God freed them. God delivered them. So there was blood and there was flesh involved And now at this point in history, there's also bread. So all of the imagery, these are all Old Testament figures, right? Why did the people celebrate the Feast of of Unleavened Bread? Why? Why did they celebrate this feast? Because God had provided food for them another year. So it's celebration. It's a time for us to celebrate and rejoice in God's provision. And Jesus is saying, he ties it together with the manna, I am God's provision, And it's during a time of the year where these things would have been fresh in their mind. The Jewish people, their life was was tied to the calendar, their religious life. God embedded worship in their calendar. Not only was it on a weekly basis, on Sunday that they, or Saturday, that they gathered together to worship God, but throughout the year there were these times when they would have weeks off for worship. And Jesus is availing himself of of what's going on, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the meaning of the manna. And now he brings in the Passover. So he says to them, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Remember last week how we we. How do you define what Jesus means by eating? Well, you look at what eating produces in this chapter. What does it produce? Eternal life. What else produces eternal life? Believing. So, yes, Jesus is using uh, symbolic language, and he is intending to stir the people on to faith, but what, in essence, he's saying is, you must believe in me, and particularly now. As he moves a little further, what he says to them is, you must believe that I came down from heaven to be a sacrifice and a substitute to bear God's wrath that you might be delivered from it. This is what Jesus is saying to the people. And he is saying these same things to us today. 
If you would eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you will have eternal life. If you believe in Jesus, particularly that he is the God-man, that he came down from heaven to sacrifice, to give himself, so that the wrath of God that is against you, just like that destroying angel was was going through the land of Egypt, the wrath of God is going throughout all this world, and one day either you're going to die, and you will enter into God's presence and have to bear the punishment for the sins that you've committed, or the Lord will return and he'll stand as your judge, one or the other. And apart from faith in Christ, you will be damned. You will not escape the wrath of God. And what Jesus is saying is that you must believe in me. It's a call to faith. In John 6, 40, what does he say? This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day. That's exactly what he says in verse 54. He's just using imagery. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So it's a call to faith. Believe in me. And all he's doing is he's taking the imagery that points to him in the Passover, that points to him in the the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that points to him in the manna. He's taking all of this imagery to assist them. And this is the reason they must believe. I just read verse 54. Verse 55. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. It is by my death that you will be or can be sustained spiritually. Apart from his death, we have no salvation. All we have is wrath. So in Hebrews chapter 10, the author writes, When he came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. It was his body that was offered for the forgiveness of sins. Now, of course, this is future. This hasn't happened yet. So the, so for these Jews, these things seem almost impossible. But if they had understood their Old Testaments, and if they had been patient, they would have understood what Christ was saying. They would not have taken offense, which we'll look at next week. Look at verse uh, 60. Look at verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And then look at verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And so these were hard things for them to understand. But Jesus presses the issue. Now, verse 56. So, uh, verses 53 through 55, what Jesus is saying is, you must believe that I came from heaven to die for your sins. That's it. I am the only means by which you can be forgiven. 
Now look at verse 56. Whoever, and this is, this is the same term that's, that's used in verse 54. You see, verse 54, some of your translations say whoever, and verse 55, it says he who. Now, they must have just done that for variety because it's the same uh, Greek term. Whoever eats my flesh, verse 56, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, a comparison, this is why, this is why there is life for those who abide in Christ. We'll take a look at what that language means in a second. Because as the Father has sent me, and lives because of, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. As the Father is the fountain from which the Son has life, so all who believe in the Son receive life from Him, eternal life from Him. Well, what, what does Jesus mean by abide here, though? The answer is in uh, John 15. Turn to John 15 briefly, and we'll look at verses 4 through 6. John 15. Because Jesus says that the person who believes that he came from heaven to die as a ransom, to die as a substitute in their place, this person abides in Christ. What does that mean? Well, in John chapter 15, beginning at verse 4 through 6, Jesus uses this same language, but a bit of different imagery. Abide in me, and I in you. Now, here's the, here's the imagery. As a, the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So, if we had a, um, if we had a, if we had a, a branch and we lopped it off of the vine and we threw it on the floor, would it produce any fruit? No. It needs the, that, that sap that's running through the vine, right? That, that life-sustaining sap that flows through the vine goes into the branches and then produces those nice, juicy clumps of grapes. And what Jesus is saying is that the person who believes in him, there's this vital union. It's a spiritual union that begins and that union then produces life in them. He continues. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me in other words, the person who believes in me is united to me and I live in him and produce life in him. Um, there's no other way to describe this than to say what Jesus is talking about is a mystical union. It's not... Um, um, 
This is a crude illustration. But it's not like a baby, right, in the, the womb of a woman, right? And there, of course, the baby is feeding off of the woman and, and growing up into a person. But there's not a piece of Christ in us. Like, you know, a, um, I've got a toe, Fernando's got a knee, Rick's got a hand. No, there is this spiritual union that happens where Christ, by his spirit, abides. He resides in the person. In the book of Hebrews, the word that Paul uses is uh, a, a word that means that Christ inhabits us as a home by his spirit. That Christ may dwell in your hearts richly. I think it's in chapter 4. And what he means is that Christ inhabits us now. Christ lives in us. And by his spirit transforms and conforms us into his image. That's how you can know if you have truly eaten his flesh and drank his blood. So if a person wants to know, well, how, how do I know if I have truly believed that Christ came from heaven and died for my sins? Is he producing the fruits or the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Is there love, joy, peace, patience, thankfulness, self-control? Are these things evidence? Is there a desire to put off sin and to put on godliness? Is there a, a yearning to be with God's people and to fellowship with those who have the Spirit as you do? So, the people must, um, we must believe in Christ. We must believe that he came from heaven, that he came to die for our sins, to satisfy the wrath of God. And if we believe in him, he produces the evidence of that faith in our life. He gives life. A vital, mystical union occurs, and life is given to us. Now verse 58, this is the bread which came down from heaven. A contrast, we looked at this last week. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. As Paul says in uh, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, they partook of that spiritual food, it was no benefit to them. This spiritual food, if you partake of it, there is great benefit. It imparts life to you. It imparts life to you. Now a question that many people have and, and there was a lady that came here who brought up this passage to me too with regards to the Lord's Supper. Is, is Jesus talking about the Lord's Supper here at all? Well, let's, let's look at uh, one verse here. Look at verse 54. He who or whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So, uh, a person who takes this passage sacramentally would say that this is talking about the Lord's Supper. So that, any, so that would mean that if you have ever taken the Lord's Supper, whoever takes the Lord's Supper has eternal life. 
Well, that's wrong. Because there are people who never took the Lord's Supper and have eternal life. One example is the thief on the cross. So that can't be what Jesus means. Now, and, and of course, the, the people would have no idea what the Lord's Supper is because Jesus hasn't instituted it yet. They, they would have no understanding. It would make absolutely no sense to them. Now, after the fact, though, after Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, is there a significance in these passages that's meaningful for the Lord's Supper? Yeah, there is. So what I'm saying is, Jesus uh, preaches this sermon. He institutes the Lord's Supper. He, he dies on the cross. He's buried. He rises from the dead and he ascends into heaven. Is there some significance for us now in these passages with regards to the Lord's Supper? Yeah, with regards to what it points to. Not the supper in itself. What the Lord's Supper points to is Christ dying for us that we might have eternal life. And what the supper reminds us of and what the and as the uh, what the um, what the supper reminds us of is that he died for us that we may have eternal life. The way the supper strengthens our faith is by uh, confirming to us that he died for us. The promises of God are sure and certain and we have eternal life in the son. So Jesus doesn't have the Lord's Supper in mind, but after he institutes the supper, the significance of his death in this passage is meaningful and it's helpful for us understanding what the Lord's Supper means. Now, this John finishes this section and he says this. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Do you remember what he said to them uh, previously with regards to the Father? He cites Isaiah, and he says this to them in verse 45. It is written by the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has ever seen the Father, except he who is from the Father. He has seen the Father. The way that the Father teaches, when we looked at this passage, so I'll just give a summary. The way that the Father teaches his people is by means of his Son. In the past, Hebrews 1.1, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us through his Son. And the Son was there speaking. The Father was teaching through the Son because the Son, John 1.18, declares who the Father is to the world. And as he is declaring who the Father is, preaching one of the best sermons anyone has ever laid ears on, Everyone believes in him. No. The crowds don't believe in him, and he actually loses disciples. Now, th you know, this isn't, I'm not commending bad sermons. Right? But the, um, 
I think the reason why John makes this point is this, is that it's not in the individual. The power is not in the individual to convert or to make people believe. Our responsibility is to present the message as God would have us to present it. And then we leave. It's not that we don't plead or or we, let me say it positively, we should plead, we should pray, we should uh, uh, speak to our Jehovah's Witness friends about the cultic nature of Jehovah's Witness and, and about works righteousness and about the divinity of Christ and the divinity of the Spirit and, and uh, the atonement of Christ and what it actually means. We should labor, right? We should strive that men would believe in Christ. But then ultimately, after we have done everything that we can do, we trust in God for the results. And as Jesus taught, as Jesus was drawing men to his Father, some were being confirmed in their faith, like Peter who says, to whom shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. But the majority turn away and don't want anything to do with Jesus. So in this passage, we have a call to faith. We have the evidence of faith produced by union with Christ and we have the preaching of faith and what it produces faith in some unbelief in many let's pray heavenly father we thank you for your word we thank you for this time together as we consider the words of Christ in John 6 I pray that you would use these things Lord to to confirm us in our faith, that Christ might abide in us and produce fruit to everlasting life. In his name we pray, amen.